Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. Many of the guests on this podcast come from destinations that are certified as an international dark sky place. I've had a couple of people ask me, who certifies these places? And that's a really fantastic question. In this episode, you're going to meet the man at the helm of that organization called Dark Sky International. I think it was probably 2016, the first time I heard about this organization. And at the time, it was known as the International Dark Sky Association. I was watching this extraordinary documentary about dark skies and light pollution that was called The City Dark. I was getting ready to teach a semester-long class on naked eye stargazing, and I stumbled across this documentary while I was preparing for the class. It was the first time I had heard the term light pollution, even though I already understood the concept before I had the vocabulary for it. I grew up under the beautiful night skies of northern Idaho, and I thought that everyone saw the Milky Way every night. And then after high school, I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and I was greeted by a nearly starless sky. The sky just never really got dark at night. It stayed gray, and there were only a handful of the brightest stars that were visible. I did instantly recognize that artificial light was the culprit, I just didn't have the terminology of light pollution to explain it. The documentary included a discussion about the International Dark Sky Association and some of the places that have been certified by them. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if my community could qualify. And then a couple of weeks later, I met Ted Blank, and he's been a guest on this podcast multiple times. I found out that he was involved in an effort to get our town certified, and within two months I was invited to join the board of the Fountain Hills Dark Sky Association. And then a year later, we did receive our designation, and now I serve as president of the Fountain Hills Dark Sky Association. Over this previous summer, the International Dark Sky Association rebranded itself as Dark Sky International, and I'm part of their advocate program, and that's where I've met many wonderful people from around the world. And some of those people have been guests on this podcast. I'm three years into the podcast now, and I decided it was about time to properly introduce you to this critical organization that is spearheading dark sky advocacy around the world. My guest is Ruskin Hartley, the executive director of Dark Sky International. And in this role, he is leading the global movement to protect natural night skies for the present and for the future generations by addressing light pollution. He's no stranger to the world of conservation either. He's also worked for Fair Trade USA, Heal the Bay, and Save the Redwoods League. 
please welcome to the podcast, Ruskin Hartley. Ruskin, thank you so much for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a really, really long time. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you lead this amazing organization, Dark Sky International, and I would love for you to give us just a little history of what is Dark Sky International, who started it, how did it start, what is it all about? Yeah, that's a good, it's a great place to start, right? Now, how, how did an organization like Dark Sky International, formerly the International Dark Sky Association, came into being? And, and it really, I think, with many things, it all comes down to one individual who got a crazy idea, one individual actually, in this instance, two men down here in Tucson, Tim Hunter and Dave Crawford, uh, an amateur astronomer and professional astronomer, got together to discuss what was happening with lighting in Tucson that was impacting, in particular, Tim's ability as an amateur astronomer to observe the sky. Uh, and unlike, like many people who just move on, maybe they, they, they shoot the breeze over a cup of coffee in the morning, they resolve, no, we, we can do something about this. And it was those early conversations and those two individuals led to the foundation of the International Dark Sky Association, now Dark Sky International, about 35 years ago, uh, with, a, with a really clear, simple message that solving light pollution involves promoting better quality lighting. Uh, they really believed that the, the 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 solution was not in turning off all the lights all the time, but it was really teaching people how to light responsibly. I love how you say that they had this crazy idea, because I feel like some of the coolest things that come about start with this crazy idea of people going, I wonder if... <laughs> yeah, and I think part of their crazy idea is actually like, they threw the word international on it, right? Mm -hmm. This was too Tucson-based astronomers, one working at the Noir Lab, the National U.S. National Laboratory, one a physician working in the local hospital. But they recognized from the very start that this was a global issue uh, that really required uh, an international approach so that people all around the world could continue to enjoy dark sky, uh, star-filled skies. Um, and I think from those early beginnings as, as astronomers, uh, the organization has really grown and changed and evolved. Um, over time. So while we have, you know, count amongst our members around the world, many amateur and professional astronomers, more and more people realize this is a thing that matters if you care about the health of our environment. It, it's something that matters if we care about the health and well-being of our, of our own health and of, of our communities. And our, our mission now is very simple. Uh, our, our mission, our reason for being is to restore the nighttime environment and protect communities and, and 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 from the harmful effects of light pollution through outreach, advocacy, and education. I'm really curious how you ended up getting involved in this organization. I I I fell into it by happenstance. I just got extraordinarily lucky, and I and, and actually think my story is important because I have worked in conservation for 25 years. I've worked on issues of forest restoration in California, water quality issues, ocean, marine plastics, et cetera. And, and I, I think I'd come across light pollution. I remember someone in a committee meeting once asking, what, what's the impact of all those car lights going through the redwood forest that we were working to conserve? And, oh, that was an interesting question, but I didn't really understand what the impact light pollution was having on all living things. In fact, it was only when I saw a job posting from the International Dark Sky Association for a new executive director that it, it kind of piqued my interest, right? Here was an organization that I had never heard about 
doing work that I never really thought about, but touched everything that I cared about, was striving to have a global impact. Uh, and it was through the conversations with the board of directors and the staff that I really started to learn more uh, about the value of naturally dark skies and the impact of light pollution, and critically, the simple things that we can all do uh, to be part of that solution. And I joined uh, on staff about five years ago now. I think I've been around about that long <laughs> with your organization. You know, it's interesting, you know, you telling that story, you know, before we started here, I was telling you that I grew up in northern Idaho, where I thought everybody saw the Milky Way until I moved to Phoenix. And so I had this really profound experience with light pollution, but I didn't, I didn't have the language to explain it. I never heard of that term, light pollution. And I, of course, never understood that the impact went past just the inability to see the night sky. And so it wasn't until I came across your organization that all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, let's pay attention to this. So I'm really- And I, and I think that. your story is very common. I mean, you, you, you're fortunate that in fact, you had that early experience of, of you know, living literally with a view of our of our galaxy right with the, the milky way overhead which really puts it into place i mean i, I grew up in southern england and I, I mean i remember seeing the stars i remember my parents dragging me out in the middle of the night to to see halley's comet but most of my life i've lived in large cities i mean i, I lived between london and brighton i lived out in very large cities in the middle east and then ended up in both los angeles and san francisco all the time over that period of time the sky was getting brighter we were losing natural darkness, but when you are within it, you don't, I mean, it's like the classic analogy, like, you, you know, what is the, I, I don't want to do this to frogs, but the, you know, the lobster or the frog in the boiling water, right? It's, we've just brightened the sky over time, little by little, faster and faster. And, and now we're at a point where, you know, 99% of your people in Europe and North America live under light polluted skies, many of them uh, in places that are far too bright to see the Milky Way. And, and we're, there's a whole generation that, does not know what they're missing. Yeah, I lead stargazing hikes every month here in Arizona. And we had a really lucky night last month where the sky was clear from just, you know, uh, particulates and stuff. So we had really clear air that night. There was no moon and we could see a little stretch of the Milky Way. And when I pointed it out to the people participating, they literally gasped and several of them said, I have never, ever seen this my whole life. Yeah. And they were all a lot older than me. <laughs> so it was really cool to give them that experience. Yeah. And I think it it, it is profound and it's for many people, it's transformational. It, 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 it inspires awe and, and, and wonder. And now, now the scientists are starting to tell us what does being exposed to awe mean? Well, it means we become more generous. We, we, we calm down, we relax, it's good for our health. I mean, it is literally good for our mental and physical health to be exposed to awe. And that, that leave aside the physical impacts that light's having on our body, just being exposed to something that's so much bigger than ourselves uh, really grounds us and gives us a new perspective. And that actually is something that many people carry with them for the rest of their life. Yes, I recently had, even for myself, leading stargazing experiences. I had an amazing sense of awe this summer where I went out to Greer, Arizona, and I I saw the Milky Way in a way that I had never seen before. 
So I still experience that, even though I have seen it before. So the most visible aspect um, of Dark Sky International for most people is when they find out about your Dark Sky Places program. So tell us a little bit about the program and how do you see that it's brought more awareness to people about light pollution? Yeah, our, our International Dark Sky Places program started a little over probably 20 years ago now. And in fact, the first Dark Sky Place we recognized was uh, the city of Flagstaff in Northern Arizona, really for their work to enact quality lighting. Uh, across the city. And I, I think that sort of led to the realization that recognition can be a strong, powerful motivator. Right? <laughs> you know, that that seal of approval, like the good housekeeping seal of approval, can, can I don't know, something that really people look for. And I think our international dark scale places, recognition has become that. And um, really, I would say the first of the sort of new era of dark scale places uh, was Natural Bridges State Park in Utah. And, and so really this program started has had a deep collaboration with the National Park Service from the very beginning. It's also been, it's always been more than just finding a dark place and, and calling it a dark sky place, right? It's much more than that. It's yes, these places are dark. You know, they are places where on a clear night, you will be able to go out and see the Milky Way in our dark sky park reserves and sanctuaries. But they're also places that are critically um, taking steps to put uh, quality lighting policies in place or enacting good lighting practices um, are welcoming people in to the natural environment after dark. So many of our parks are closed at night. You cannot go into most of these parks and experience the nighttime environment. Um, and critically, they're also monitoring uh, the quality of the environment over time. Um, so it's a real commitment from these places. Now, now um, there are now 210 international dark sky parks uh, around the world. In fact, the, the latest is uh, one of our new categories, an urban night sky park, which is in my back, literally, almost literally in my backyard here in uh, in Tucson, um, Suaro National Park. So we're really excited to see this concept coming closer into places where people live, where you can ex still experience relative uh, darkness and provide those really valuable experiences for people. I think that the fact that you guys recognize things on different levels is really, really important because I think it helps people understand that it's not all or nothing. You know, you don't have to turn off every single light. It's not about no lighting. It's about smart lighting. And so, yeah, we want to protect those areas that are already still very naturally dark, like Grand Canyon National Park and places like that. But I appreciate too that you guys are also wanting to recognize um places that are you know they're, they're never gonna see the milky way ever but they are making enormous efforts to do the right thing with their lighting in urban places and so i really appreciate that you guys are doing that because i think it's really important to make people feel like you know we can do something even though we live in a big area so that's and, and it really we, we really need to think about this as managing and protecting things at a sort of at a large regional scale at a landscape scale so you mentioned grand canyon grand canyon many many parts of it are exquisitely dark and there are also parts of the grand canyon where you can see the sky dome of uh, of las vegas right hundreds hundred miles away uh, and you know, at our conference this year back to fresh he was sharing a photo he had taken from the heart of death valley National Park, also a dark sky reserve, where you could see the light domes of Los Angeles 
and Las Vegas, hundred plus kilometers away. Now those those cities are, you know, unless unless there's another power cut, you're never going to see the Milky Way above those cities. I think. But there's a lot of steps those cities can take to manage light in a much more responsible manner, which will be good for, you know, creating sustainable communities. It will reduce the energy usage. It will create safe working space. It will ensure that uh, light from your neighbor's wall packs are not blasting into your kid's bedroom windows. So you, you have to go and buy blackout blinds. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, this is just about uh, thinking about how to light responsibly in a way uh, that protects those natural values. And it's, it's a, when you get right down to it, it's about being a good neighbor. Yes, for sure. I like to that that addressing light pollution, even on an individual basis, is is really easy. It's not like having to clean up a toxic river or a toxic dump or something like that. It's relatively easy, you know? It's just a matter of maybe switching out some light fixtures or some light bulbs or just rethinking how we light. And that's exciting to me too. It's it's very doable for anyone. Yeah, and I think unlike, you know, clearly there's a lot of people talking about you know, saving energy and it, in a sense that, that that's a great concept and yes you see it at the end of the month when you see your energy bill and there's that signal but when you're dealing with light you, you can see the immediate results right you, you change out a fixture for a, a fixture that's pointing down rather than glaring out there when you drive home your driveway at night you'll see your your the, the the steps in front of your house lit as opposed to the glare coming into your eyes right so that you you get that immediate uh, benefit and, and you know, some of them are so you don't even need to change out some of these sometimes it is literally just turning the fixtures off or i know drawing the blinds at night so you're not blasting light from your uh, living spaces out into the into the external environment i mean that there's there's no one who loses when you address light pollution by promoting and addressing using you know responsible quality lighting principles you just mentioned something that <laughs> i was guilty of so I've never had blinds on any of the windows on the back side of my house. My backyard is very private. There's really tall hedges between me and all my neighbors. And so I've just never bothered with them. And when I got my first telescope, I took it out to the backyard and I was like, there's too much light out here. And my husband goes, well, I turned off all the lights. And I go, it's all coming from inside the house. So we had to turn off all the lights inside the house just so we could enjoy the stargazing in our own backyard. So that's a really good tip right there to put, you know, put blinds on your windows. Yeah. And I think if, if you think about, you no, know, I think, you know, you, you were just talking about light pollution coming from cities. And I think a lot of the focus of the dark sky movement has been on streetlights and parking lot lights and, and, and rightly so. There are some really, really bad examples of streetlights and, and parking lot lights but any of you seen a classic picture of one of our, of our cities at night what you see is the outlines of the buildings lit up by all those windows at you know two o'clock in the morning when there's probably not many maybe there's one or two people in there cleaning um and and, and so we're, we're starting to see cities even like cities like new york are recognizing that not only can they save energy by requiring those lights to be off at night but the, the whole movement of um, protecting uh, bird migration corridors, the realization that millions, if not billions of birds are being killed each year in, in North America as they migrate through Houston, through Chicago, through Los Angeles and, and New York. And by taking simple steps to turn off the lights, yes, we're saving energy, we're reducing light pollution, and we're directly helping these migrating birds make it to their, their 
uh, foraging and nesting grounds. I had recently interviewed Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and we talked about this, the bird migration. And then the very next week, we saw in the news that in a single night at a single building, a thousand birds had struck this building and died in Chicago. And so again, like you're saying, there's easy steps to take, knowing when these peak migrations are and knowing what we can do to help with that. And um, I feel very encouraged because, because it is a simple solution. I think it's just the awareness and education, which you guys are doing a tremendous job with. And, you know, you have an uh, advocate program. I'm part of your advocate program. And you bring in people from all over the world to help educate them so they can educate their communities. And, and it's a tremendous effort that you guys are doing. We'll continue our conversation with Ruskin in just a minute. But first, I've got some really fun news for you. I've just published my 2024 stargazing guide, and I can't wait for you to get your eyes on it. This full color guide takes you month by month through the year so that you won't miss any meteor showers, full moons, eclipses, planet viewings, or other exciting celestial events. Each month has a featured constellation with cultural star stories to inspire your stargazing. And by the end of the year, you'll have a better grasp on how our moon works. And the best part, the 2024 Stargazing Guide is free. It's my gift to you because I want you to have your own stargazing experiences. It's always more fun when you know what you're looking for and when to look for it. To get your free download of the 2024 Stargazing Guide, visit nightskytourist.com and click on the link. It's so easy, and before you know it, it'll be right there in your inbox, ready for you to use the next time you go stargazing. If you're already a newsletter subscriber, watch your inbox. Your download is already heading your way. I can't wait to share the magic of the night sky with all of you in 2024. Visit nightskytourist.com today and get your free guide. Share with us a little bit about what is Dark Sky International's approach when it comes to lighting policies. I know you guys obviously have to get involved in that either yourselves directly or helping others who are working on that in their own communities. What's your approach? Yeah, what we discussed with the Dark Sky Places program, how every single Dark Sky Place, you know, one of the requirements is an excellent quality lighting policies. And I think more and more we're recognizing that while voluntary actions are, are certainly a critical part of the solution, they cannot scale quickly enough to, to address the, what was the latest estimate, 10% annual growth rate in, in light pollution. And it's very clear that we need smart policy solutions um, at every level. I mean, if we just look here to the United States, uh, lighting decisions are taking lit literally at every level of government. People are having an impact from the federal level to the state level to the municipal level, the very local uh, level. So our, our approach going forward is really we'll be putting uh, policy solutions kind of front and center uh, in the toolkit and, and developing tools, resources and templates so that you can talk, go and talk to your uh, elected city council about some steps that they can take uh, to promote light quality lighting uh, in their community and again 
I think part of this is the education piece is so important. You know, this is not about denying people access to light, but this is denying people access to bad, glary lives. Uh, and, and so really right, making it real and tangible for people at the, at the local level. Um, and, and being a global organization, also looking for opportunities to scale that up to a national level. Uh, for instance, Chile recently updated their national lighting code. It initially had started to protect the major observatories in the Atacama Desert, um, and they recognized the benefits of pursuing quality lighting. And in fact, now they've enacted national level law to ensure that all lights are pointed down at the ground rather than up in the sky, that they're warmer in color. You know, the simple things, simple steps. I think France is also a leader. France is requiring businesses to turn off their lights uh, when they're closed. I mean, <laughs> seems like a pretty simple idea to me, but, you know, it, 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 there are simple solutions out there that we can look to and then we can start to figure out what will work in, in, our, in our cities and communities to be part of this solution. We have a perfect example here in Fountain Hills. We had a situation where there was a new small apartment complex that was built. And, you know, they had to get their permitting for their exterior lighting. But I think they didn't use what they got permitted for because they had these things on the side of the building that had no shielding. They would shine straight out and they were right along a major road in town. And we started getting complaints from people saying, when I drive by at night, I have to turn my head away because it's so bright. And so then I don't, I don't feel safe driving down the road. Well, we're not, we're not the uh, code enforcement. <laughs> That's the town. But because we have a lighting code that addresses things like this, that is very dark sky friendly. Um, we were able to go to the town and say, hey, <laughs> this place is creating a safety issue. These are not dark sky compliant. And we let the town handle it by saying, this is our town lighting code. Yeah. And this is not code that you've put in. And so within a month, it was completely changed. And so I love that too, because then it's not like, you know, a group of advocacy people trying to hound somebody. It's built into the town code. And everyone has to comply with it. Yeah, that 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 that's a great story, and it also shines a, a light, no pun intended, in this in this instance. That you no know, more light is not better light. You know, yeah. more, particularly these days, it's it's so easy. You can go into any of your local hardware store, and you can buy an incredibly bright, and unshielded fixture, and if you put it in the wrong location at the wrong time, you are creating a safety hazard. Yes. And, and really, that's what these quality lighting codes really, that's one of the things that they deal with. What would you say are some of the biggest successes and greatest challenges you've had with with uh, lighting policies? Well, I think that the, the, the successes at this point is that it really feels, particularly this year, that there's growing awareness around the world about that light pollution is a real issue. Let's just put it that way. Like, I think if we we're having this conversation five years ago, you and I would have understood it, but we wouldn't be having pieces almost every week in the national local media covering issues of the value of dark skies and light pollution, leading scientific journals like Science and the Royal Proceedings in, in the UK in December are publishing major issues about the impact of light pollution um, as an ecological issue that's impacting ecosystems, impacting public health. So I think we're at a point that light pollution is starting to get the recognition it needs. 
Um, and, and, and you know, on, on a policy level, I, 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 it's certainly here in the US, I'd say it's lacking. I mean, we are not leaders in the world. And if we're leaders in the terms of the number of dark sky places we have we have certified, but that, that's at a relatively small scale compared to the sort of actions that we need. Now, we are optimistic in the next few years that we are going to start to see states coming on board uh, and adopting quality lighting policies and also um, the early stages of, of, of cities adopting better lighting plans and lighting policies. Salt Lake City is a, is a great example. They adopted a great uh, a street lighting master plan next year that it, it really respects the, the different environments across that city and it is really promoting a better, smarter, more responsible approach to lighting. Um, and I think when we start to see cities and some cities and states start to step out, then we'll see more and more follow. So here's a personal question for you. What in Dark Sky International is happening right now that excites you the most? I, I'm excited by the sense that this really is a global movement. We're just coming off our Under One Sky 24-hour virtual conference where we got to engage with people from around the world, you know, 50 different countries, advocates coming together to share stories of success and and, and the challenges. So that, that's exciting uh, to be part of that. And I think it's also exciting to be here at a, at a point that light pollution is getting coverage, as I mentioned in the, in the major publications, the feeling like we have the right platform to accelerate our progress um, over the coming years. There's a lot of energy, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of mobilization, and, we'll, we're, and the plan is to sort of support and engage and empower that so that we can have a greater impact over the next five years than we have over, so arguably over the last 35 years. I think now is the moment to sort of seize this as we have, we have that sort of uh, groundswell of support. It's pretty exciting. Even the Smithsonian is recognizing this. They have an entire exhibit right now on Lights yeah, Out. Yeah, the there's an exhibit in the Smithsonian about Lights Out. Um, there was a major conference in Europe last year that we were part of that adopted the Bruno Accord for light pollution. Um, so the, the, there are, uh, the fact that Chile took its law from uh, you know, protecting the telescope in the Atacama Desert to nationwide shows that now is the time <laughs> people yeah. are starting to get it that you know, light at night is a source of pollution and we need to put policy solutions in place to address it that promote better quality light for everyone. So here, this next question is kind of the other end of the spectrum for you. What about your job keeps you awake at night? <laughs> so last night, what kept me awake was I was presenting at a conference virtually in Addis Ababa in the middle of the night, right? So that, that, that's part of the fun, right? It's this is a global movement. So, at, you know, almost midnight, I was presenting to an astrotourism conference in, 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 in Ethiopia. So that's pretty exciting to be able to have, build and share those connections. I mean, the, the, the other pieces as an organization level, I think maybe people don't realize that, but a nonprofit is a business like any other business. And we have payroll to make and we have expenses and we have families that are relying on this. So that keeps me awake at night. You know where are we going to end at the end of this year? And then but more, more broadly, um, just the opportunity to support people around the world is is what excites me. Um, in fact, I, I mean, what I wish was keeping me awake at night was the opportunity to go out and do some stargazing, maybe, maybe <laughs> but with, with a young family and stuff. Maybe I don't spend as much time doing that, 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 that as I'd like to. Well, I would imagine that Saguaro National Park is going to start doing more stargazing uh 
events now that they're a recognized location. Yeah, I know. So I was talking to my wife <laughs> the other night and like, you know, it's, I think when we think about dark skies, we tend to think about the nights that are the darkest, right? When there's no moon up and you can go and see the Milky Way. I, I think one of the special times to get out, certainly down here and in the desert in the winter, is actually to go out under a full moon. Yes. Go for a hike in the park. Yes, <laughs> really I love doing to that. experience what the, the world is like at night. And it, I tell you one thing, it ain't dark. <laughs> if you're out here in the desert on, on a full moon night, it's uh, darkness is the last thing that's on your mind. It, it really is a magical environment to be out in. I feel like a full moon and saguaro cacti belong together. It's, yeah, the, it's a beautiful <laughs> scene. <laughs> it's pretty special. <laughs> So Russ can tell us how people can get involved in Dark Sky International. I know there's a lot of different ways, but share with us some of the things people can do. At the heart of it, um, Dark Sky International, we we, we, support, we support the global Dark Sky advocacy movement. It is a people-driven movement. His neighbor talking to neighbor, people getting involved in their communities. So that the, the simplest way to get involved is to go to our website, darksky.org, and sign up as one of the advocate volunteers. This is a great community to learn more. If, if you're at the start of your journey, you've just heard about it. There are people who will help you get up that learning curve. Maybe you have, maybe you're an astrophotographer or you're a lighting designer or you're a planner. I mean, there's places for everyone to sort of plug in uh, to this broader global movement. And of course, as a, as a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support of our members. So We'd love people to consider joining us as, as, as a member, getting involved uh, actively uh, in this movement and figure out what you can do around your home, around your neighborhood, in, in your city to, uh, to be part of the solution here. I'm going to put the link to that in the description box here so people can just quickly go and click on that and get over to you guys. And I really recommend that they do. You guys have so many amazing resources so people can learn more but you also have um the list of all the places that you've certified i love scrolling through that it's so much fun yeah next time you're planning a visit you could plan it around a visit to some of the dark skate places either here in the u.s yeah. or 20 different countries and growing around the world absolutely and that's some of what i do here with the night sky tours podcast we interview a lot of those places so saguaro national park will be on my list here soon since that's it's it. newly i just saw that yesterday i'm pretty excited about that ruskin thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today we we appreciate the work that you're doing and um, just thrilled to finally have you on this podcast to talk about the heart of everything that Night Sky Tourist is about. Okay, well, thanks for having me on and I look forward to following your work. Have you thought about giving the gift of the night sky to the people on your gift list? I have a couple of suggestions for you. Suggestion number one. You can't go wrong with putting a big ribbon on a telescope. However, not all telescopes are gift worthy or stargazing worthy for that matter. If you want someone to fall in love with the night sky by giving them a telescope, make sure that you get one that doesn't frustrate them and ruin the experience. Previously, I had Ted Blank as a guest on an episode where he shared valuable tips for choosing a telescope. Ted has helped me select my two telescopes, and he was spot on in recommending both of them based on the ways I wanted to use them. So if you're thinking about buying a telescope, make sure you listen to episode 25 to get Ted's advice. You can listen to it at nightskytourist.com slash 25. 
You can also find the link in the show notes, along with a link to my favorite telescope for beginners. And I'll also add a link for the one add-on that I highly recommend. Okay, suggestion number two. This suggestion is for the kids on your gift list. Get them books about the night sky. I have two great resources for you to learn about some of the best books that I recommend. The first resource is a really fun episode that I did last year where I interviewed five children's book authors and illustrators who shared a behind-the-scenes look at their beautiful night sky-themed books. That was episode 54. I interviewed Paul Bogard, Marsha Dion Arnold, Brianna J. McDaniel, Susanna Chapman, and Jamie Hogan. And that was a really special episode, so don't miss it. You can listen to it at nightskytourist.com slash 54. I also have a new blog article that I published just this week titled 20 Night Sky Books for Children. Every one of these books occupies space on my own bookshelf, and you can read it at nightskytourist.com slash 20 children's books. But you know what's going to be a lot easier? Just check out the show notes. There are links for everything right there. Or visit nightskytourist.com slash 81 and you'll find all the links there too. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we get outside for a midwinter stargazing tour. The winter sky is filled with some of the best constellations and stars, plus a couple of planets that are still hanging around. Until then, stop by nightskytourist.com to download your free 2024 stargazing guide. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it and giving us five stars. Your ratings are really important to me and they help more people discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. Until next time, keep looking up.